Um, a couple of things um, to kind of introduce myself. Um, again, I'm the area director on the peninsula, so I sort of oversee Young Life here, um, which is really, really fun, a huge blessing. My wife, Rachel, and I, Rachel's in the back. She's amazing. Um, we have been involved for a lot of years. We've been here for two and a half years. Uh, Rachel's incredible. She's a nurse practitioner. So if you have like a thing on your leg you want someone to see, feel free after church. You can walk back there and be like, what about this? You know, you can do that whole thing. Um, feel free. She's amazing. She is a, a full-time nurse practitioner who is also a volunteer Young Life leader, which is incredible. Um, so that's my wife and I, uh, and we have four furry uh, family members. We have two cats, Waffle and Sweet Potato. Our last name is Fry. I'll let you put the pun together. Um, and then we have two dogs. We have one dog named Moose, who is insane. And then we have another dog who we just rescued recently. His name is George. So we have Waffle, Sweet Potato, Moose, and George. Um, so our, our house is literally a zoo. Like when the pandemic is like a little bit less and we feel comfortable going to each other's houses, please come to ours. If you want to go to a free petting zoo, you can come to our house. I won't charge you anything. You can just come in and pet the, the animals. Uh, they're insane. We love them. Um, but yeah, uh, when it comes to Young Life and, and doing ministry in a pandemic, Josh Cross knows about this, uh, doing youth work. Um, it's been really hard, as you can imagine. It's hard for everybody, right? Like everyone's job is different. Everyone's life is different. Um, but for us working in a ministry that is relational, where my job is to go be with people during a time when I'm not supposed to go be with people, it's very confusing, very hard, and it's a struggle. Um, and there's been a lot of days where I know our leaders have asked this question. And I, have, I have asked this question every day, multiple times a day. Why? Why is this happening? Why is this so hard? Why would you want to put a stop to something that's good? Like, I think that, like, we're helping the kingdom, right? Like, why is this, why are we putting on the brakes? And it's very hard. Um, but there's a story, a lot of times when I'm kind of struggling, uh, I come back to stories that I know well, stories that a lot of us know well, and they're typically stories about Jesus, um, and those are the stories that help me, help remind me of what it is that I'm putting my faith and my hope in. So we're going to go to Mark 5. It's a story probably many of you know. This is a really involved church. This is a smart church. You probably led Bible studies on this passage. You read it a thousand times. Um, we're going to Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Um, I'm going to give a little context about where we are, but a little context to me. Just so you know, if you haven't, if you can't tell by now, I love humor. I love to laugh. I think God invented laughter. I think he invented humor. I can't wait to go to heaven and laugh more than I ever laughed before. Um, I love humor. And so throughout this, there might be times where you're like, I'm not sure if he's making a joke or not. You can just laugh anyways. I support that. Even if you're like, I don't think he's making a joke, but I want to laugh. You can laugh then too. I'm usually that guy in the back that at some point will laugh, and you'll be like, who is that? Like, no one's laughing. Who is that? It's me. You can look back. I'm in the back right usually. Um, so it's totally fine if you laugh. I love it. It, it, it makes me happy. Um, a little context for the story. Jesus is kind of early on in his ministry. He's been going out. He's using Capernaum as sort of a home base right now. So he'll be there. It's a Jewish territory. It's kind of where, you know, he grew up kind of thing. And he's going from Capernaum out. He does a bunch of miracles, and he comes back to Capernaum. Usually a bunch of people meet him. Then he goes back out. He dispels some demons, normal days of work, comes back. 
There's a bunch of people there waiting for him. And so this is Jesus coming back over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Uh, another thing that you should know is that there's going to be a huge group, and I'll just say this now so I don't keep stopping, there's a huge crowd waiting for him. And, and you've probably heard this before, but there was always a huge crowd waiting for Jesus. Like he was never alone. We love to talk about self-care, and that's a good thing. And Jesus did it by going away and spending time with the Lord and praying and being in solitude. But he did not do that that many times in the Bible because there were so many people all the time. And how exhausting is that? I'm kind of in this phase where like I was always an extrovert growing up and now I'm like maybe becoming more of an introvert because I'm like, you spend time with people all day and at night, the last thing you want to do is spend time with people. And so like you want to go home and like watch Netflix and like don't talk to me. And, um, but Jesus never got that. He would go out all day and be with people all day. He was never in the office doing admin work. He was out with people. Then he would come back and there would be hundreds of people waiting and going, what did you just do? And now what are you going to do? And what are you going to do later? And can we come with you? How exhausting and overwhelming must that have been? Um, so now we're going to get into the scripture. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Um, a couple of things to know about Jairus. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. He was likely a Pharisee. Again, this is a, small, a smart church, an involved church. You probably know what a Pharisee was. They were teachers of the law. They were high-status people. They were up at the top. At this time, if you were a synagogue ruler, you were like the most like popular, reputable, high-standing person. They didn't love Jesus because he wasn't exactly who, he, who they thought he was. Like he was coming in. They had a lot of power. He was kind of like stirring the pot. And they felt very threatened by him. So they didn't love Jesus. And so this guy Jairus, for Jairus to come to Jesus and ask Jesus for his help was a huge deal. It was risky for him. People probably were like, what do you do? Like if there were Pharisees around, which there probably were, they were like, why is Jairus talking to him? Like whose side is he on? And so Jairus is coming up to Jesus and he's desperate and he falls down to his knees. I don't know the last time you like, saw somebody and fell on your knees. Like, I don't know if you were at a concert and you like saw like your idol or whatever and then like fell on the ground. Like, I don't think I've ever seen somebody and fallen onto the floor. Jairus is so desperate that he comes up to Jesus and he falls on the ground. And we hate looking desperate. Everybody in the room hates looking desperate. Nobody's like, oh, I love it. Like, we all hate it. We all hate it. Um, I, I got to spend some time with some high schoolers recently from Tab and one of them told me, um, we were talking about Snapchat and if you don't know how Snapchat works, I pray you never do. I hope you never have to deal with it. Uh, and don't go like, well, I want to know now. No, you don't. Don't do it. Um, but for the gist of it, it's a way that students communicate. And actually, middle school and high school students, and even some college students, communicate almost exclusively on Snapchat. Like at one point, I had to get Snapchat just to communicate with students because they wouldn't answer a text. Um, like they don't text. If you call them, they'll act like you don't exist. Like, they don't know, like, what calling is. Uh, they, they communicate on Snapchat. And so the way Snapchat works is you send a picture or a video or a message or something to somebody, and uh, that person will open it. And when they open it, you can see that they opened it. 
And so you know how long it takes them to respond to you. And so they might like open it and like wait like a day. And you're like, gosh, what did I do? Like, you know, they saw it and they know that, you know, they saw it. And so one thing my friend was telling me is that um, to not look desperate, what will happen is you might send somebody a message and that person will wait an allotted amount of time before opening that message because they don't want to look desperate. Like they were just sitting on the phone waiting for Snapchats to roll in. Um, So they will wait to actually answer you just so they don't look desperate. We hate looking desperate. Um, And Jairus has a huge issue. His daughter is dying. Um, He actually refers to her as his little daughter. And for some reason, the word little to me makes it a little more emotional I mean, it's already emotional, like your, your family member's dying. That's awful. Your daughter is dying. That's awful. She's a little girl. She's helpless. She doesn't know what to do, who to call, where to go. She has no money, no knowledge of how to fix anything, you know, how to fix herself. She is helpless. And she needs somebody to come rescue her. Why did Jesus go with him? Jesus went with him because he had faith, because Jairus had faith. And maybe not before this moment. You know, we don't know for sure. If he was a Pharisee, again, you might assume he didn't really love Jesus and wasn't really trusting him. Maybe he was. But in this moment, he had faith. In this moment, he was going to Jesus saying, Jesus, you're the only one who can do anything about this. And I don't know what that looks like, if you'll even do it. But I know I have to trust in you. Sometimes Jesus meets us in our most desperate moments. I would argue he always meets us in our most desperate moments. Let's keep going. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding. Oh, sorry, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, which is pretty typical. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Um, We're going to stop there too. There's a lot to know about this lady. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Um, I read up on this a little bit. This is a natural, uh, normal process that happens for women, but it was broken in her. And so she was just consistently bleeding internally, hemorrhaging. Um, a lot of medical professionals say um, that sometimes this can, uh, this can um, create severe pain, chronic uh, anemia. And I got to imagine, too, if it's, if it's so painful, sometimes, you know, like if you stub your toe, like your head hurts or something, like other parts of your body start to hurt, you imagine she's just in pain like everywhere. Like she just has this constant nagging pain for 12 years, which is a lot of years for anybody, for 12 years. Um, I also read this about her. Um, because of her condition, she was considered unclean. So we know what unclean pe- what happens to unclean people. They have to become clean again. Sometimes it was because you ate something weird, you touched something weird, you had a disease or a virus or whatever, and you were unclean. You had to go to the synagogue, follow a bunch of rules, and then they would say, you're clean now. Um, And so she was unclean. Not only was she unclean, but the type of condition she had made her unclean in the same way a leper was unclean, 
which a leper is like the worst, like you, if you touch them, you die, is like how, how everybody believed it back then. Um, and so what that meant was, if this woman wanted to go into public, she had to announce herself and not like, hey, everybody, it's me. Like she would announce herself by like ringing a bell and yelling, get away from me. They would yell, unclean, unclean. Don't come near me. Don't come talk to me. Run the other way. I have to come through here. Don't get near me. And so she had to announce herself that way everywhere she went for 12 years. Um, I couldn't help but sort of compare this. This is not a, a great comparison, but I imagine it's a little bit like when you go to the grocery store nowadays, we're in COVID central. And if you walk in and you have like allergies like I do, and you're on aisle five, and you accidentally get like a fuzzy in your nose under your mask, and you like make that like, <clears throat> like you try to like hold it in, but like you make that noise because you sneeze, you know? Um, and then everyone, they look at you, they like glare at you, right? And they glare at you like you have COVID. Actually, they glare at you like you have COVID and you know you have COVID and you're trying to give them COVID. Like you are following them around like that. I'm going to give it to them. Like that's, that's how people look at you when you sneeze like in Kroger or something. People look at her like, get away from me. Why are you coming anywhere close to me? I also read this. In the synagogues back then, a lot of times there would be a separate section for women and not like a fun like women's club, like a you go over there because we don't like you, which I'm not a fan of. I'm a 2021 man, um, but, but they did that. And she couldn't even go there. She couldn't even go. She, she was so ostracized that she was ostracized from the group of people who were already being ostracized for 12 years. She had no friends. Some of us know what it feels like to be ostracized. Some of us know exactly what it feels like to be left out. I would argue we all know that feeling at some point. We all know what it feels like to be lost, to not belong. And for 12 years, she had gone to a bunch of doctors who didn't fix her. Not only did they not fix her, they made things worse. When you go to the doctor, you go in expecting, this will make me better. And they make her worse. Not only physically is she worse, she feels worse than she did before, but she has no money. And the fact that she it mentions she now has no money means she had money before. Like she wasn't like dumb and spending on nothing. Like she spent it trying to get fixed, which we all would have done. And now she had no money. She's got financial problems. She has medical problems and physical problems and probably mental trauma from being alone for 12 years. This lady is desperate. Um, and we ask this question a lot when we talk to our, our high school or our middle school students. And I love to ask it to adults too, because sometimes as adults, we think like they're still struggling and like we're okay. But this is the question I want to ask to you. What doctors are you going to now? Because guess what? You're probably still going to doctors. I know I am. They're different than when I was in high school and middle school. But I'm still going to things, thinking that those things will, will make my life better, will fill me up. And sometimes they do for like a day. What doctors are you going to thinking, this will fix me? And it doesn't. Let's keep going. Wow, Tucker, I'm really glad that you're talking to us today. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. 
because she thought if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Um, Again, you've read this story. It's familiar to you. Sometimes we skim over that. She went up to Jesus. She touched his clothes. Wow, how cool is that? Let's talk about how much of a risk that was for her. This woman is, is like finding her way through this crowd of people. Um, it says in the scripture that they were thronging about him. They were like flocking. They were all over him. And so she's going through trying to touch his cloak. Every person she touches is in effect now unclean. Every person she, she touches, bumps into whatever, they're now unclean. Not to mention when she gets to Jesus, who is a prominent figure in the community and touches him, he's now unclean. She's breaking all the rules. Uh, I don't know this for sure, but based on the way that women were treated, based on the way that people were unclean were treated, based on the rules of the society, if someone had recognized her, had been like, wait a minute, isn't that that lady, you know, that's always coming through with the bell? They could have exiled her, imprisoned her, or killed her. I'm sure they would have done it right then and there. Like she's coming through with no regard. Just just touching people. The risk that this takes. So she goes up to him and she touches his cloak. Sometimes Jesus meets us in our most desperate moments. And it works. Um, I like the ESV version of this a little bit. It says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. Immediately healed. Just from touching his clothes. Just the hem of his his garments. I don't know if she, like, it says that she immediately, she knew. I don't know if she, like, felt it. I don't know if she just, like, suddenly she was like, oh, yeah. But you got to imagine she feels amazing. And then maybe she sort of is realizing like where she is. And she's like, uh-oh, I just touched all these people. I got to get out of here. And she's sneaking away. This part's always funny to me. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? I think this is really funny. Again, I think that sometimes in scripture, we like roll over things that are like very funny and very like sometimes strange to us and you shouldn't because it's wonderful. Jesus looks around, she touches his garments, she goes away. He gets up and goes, who touched me? And his disciples are like, Jesus, it's a lot of people here. Anybody touched you. I probably bumped you at least several times. Like anybody could have touched you. Not to mention, is Jesus really that confused? Like did this woman like bamboozle him? Like he had no idea that like she had just touched him. He's the God of the universe, fully God, fully man. He knows who touched him. But Jesus is smarter than we are and knows exactly what this lady needs because she could have left and been fine. She'd been healed. She'd been saved. She had connected with God. She could have gone, but Jesus knew exactly what she needed and how to meet her. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Everything about this encounter is uncharted territory for her, for anybody, to go around touching people, making them unclean, be healed, and then be called out by the guy who you just like touched. And you gave, like they, she doesn't know what's going to happen. And so she comes up to you, falls down at his feet again. Again, here we are, another person falling down on the ground at Jesus' feet, which happens a bunch of times in Scripture. People just fall down. Um, a quick comparison is when, uh, when the Roman guard comes to arrest Jesus, one version of the story says that they say, hey, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, it's me, and they all fall on the ground, like soldiers who are trained for this fall down on the ground because they're scared of him. Do you know why this woman told him the whole truth, told him her whole story? I think part of it was because she was scared. And I think if we're really honest, we get too comfortable with God sometimes. I think sometimes we get too comfortable and we feel like we don't really need to tell him everything. You know, because like, you know, he doesn't get it. You know, or he doesn't deserve to know. But this woman knew, I need to tell him everything. I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to leave anything out. I think sometimes we can be too comfortable. Uh, and he says to her exactly what she needs to hear, which is daughter. He doesn't say lady. He doesn't say woman. He says daughter. Calling her daughter mattered so much because for 12 years, she wasn't a part of any family. To call her daughter means you are part of my family. You are my child. You belong here with me. You belong. It's exactly what you needed to hear. And then he says, your faith has healed you. What I don't want you to take from the scripture is if I try really hard, if I just think really hard and a lot about God, my problems will go away. I'll fix myself because her, her faith healed her, right? So my faith should heal me. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. What he was saying was, your faith in me has healed you. Your faith in me has healed you. And in fact, the, the Greek for the, the word healed here is sozo, which really means saved. And so she's physically healed and she's spiritually saved. And that wasn't because she tried really hard or she thought really hard about it or she just like had more faith. She had some faith in Jesus. It's not about how much faith you have. It's who your faith is in. And again, earlier I asked you, what doctors are you going to? What I don't want you to do is go home and have a list of things that are bad in your life and think, if I just believe really hard, they're going to go away. It's not about how much you believe. And thank God, because there's a lot of days I don't believe very much. It's about who you put your faith in, who you believe in. It also really matters that he does this in front of everybody. Again, he could have let her go away, but he does it in front of everyone. Why? Because now the community knows that this woman is okay. In front of everybody, he says, she's safe. She's healed. She's a daughter. Leave her alone. She's all good. And she doesn't need to go to the synagogue and do all those things that they want him to do. It's because I say so. Let's keep going. 
While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. Oh, yeah, Jairus is still standing there, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Um, I wonder what Jairus is thinking. I love this story because it's like multiple stories happening at once. Like some of us, we're honest, stopped listening to me for a little while, and we forgot that we were in another story. Jairus is still standing there the whole time. And what is he thinking? Is he like, is he mad? Is he like anxious the whole time? Like, can we, can she come along with us, Jesus? Like, so that we can get this thing going? Is he like looking at his watch? You know, is he sweating? His daughter is dying. This lady seems like okay-ish. Like, can she come along? And then they come up and they say, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. If I were Jairus, I would be mad. Because in essence, the people responsible for your daughter's death are in front of you. Because Jesus stopped. We were rolling and we were going to go heal my daughter. But because of this lady and because you couldn't, you couldn't like wait a little while, now my daughter's dead. What gives, Jesus? And then maybe, I don't know if you've had this experience where you get really mad about something and you feel really guilty about being mad and then you're mad at yourself for being mad and then you feel more guilty. Maybe he's feeling guilty, like he's really upset about it, but he's also like, this was also a really good thing for this lady and so I feel terrible about myself. There's a lot that could be happening in him. And the people around obviously don't have that much faith in Jesus. They have enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal her, but they think that that's pretty much the cap of his power. Like, she, like if she was still alive, yeah, Jesus, come on as fast as you can. You can heal her. But she's dead now, so, like, you're out of the game. You don't, you don't really know. Like, you can't really do anything about this. Um, we limit God's faith a ton. In our lives, in the world, Jesus, probably, he probably can't do this. You know, that, that relationship is long gone. Um, these people are, are just lost. I know for me, I've had this come up a ton. And I know that's true for our Young Life leaders and probably Josh and the youth leaders here. Like, like no one's going to meet Jesus during this thing. We can't be with anybody. No kids are going to know Christ because of this. As if God can't, can't do whatever he wants to in the middle of a pandemic. As if it's not God who calls people home, not us. Let's keep going. Um, Jesus' response to him is just two things. Don't be afraid, believe. Jesus says this a bunch of times in the Bible. He says, don't be afraid. And a lot of them are really funny to me because I'm always like, it's when I'm like, I would be terrified. Like he says it one time when he comes back from the dead, which is something that no one has done before. And he comes up and he, and he appears in the room to his disciples after being crucified and he's resurrected. And he appears and he goes, don't be afraid. And I'd be like, oh, like, you know, like, you can't tell me how to be afraid. This is terrifying. Um, he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe in me. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John. He had uh, a couple, you know, three that he hung out with the most. Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Um, 
sometimes this gets confusing. And we're like, well, was, was the child asleep? Like, was the child dead? The child was dead. Like, that's not up for debate. This is a story that appears in three of the four Gospels. All three, this girl is dead. But he tells them she's asleep, and they don't get Jesus, like, yet. So they're like, what do you mean she's asleep? Like, I know she's dead. We checked her pulse. She's totally dead. They're so disbelieving of Jesus, and in such a, like, a weird way, because they've been crying, they start laughing, which is like that weird thing where you're crying and laughing. You're like, I don't know if I'm happy, sad. What do I feel? And they're, they're laughing, and everyone's like, criticizing Jesus. Like, Jesus, you're a nutcase if you think she's asleep. She's dead. What are you thinking? And so Jesus sends them outside. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Ka'um, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, which is the same amount of time the woman had been bleeding. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone, uh, not to let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. Um, Jesus goes to this girl, and who knows what the parents are thinking. You know, I don't know if they have like a flicker of hope. Maybe they're just like, are you just torturing us right now by doing all this, Jesus. And he grabs her by the hand. He says, little girl, get up. And he brings her back from death into life. This little girl who was hopeless or helpless, but not hopeless, who couldn't do anything about herself, couldn't do anything about her condition. Her family couldn't do anything. You know her parents loved her and they couldn't do anything. She needed Jesus to bring her back from death to life. Um, the end of this is also kind of funny to me. Um, it says at the end, he, he gave him strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told him to give her something to eat. He does this a couple of times. He like does something totally insane and then, like, amazing. And then he says, don't tell anybody about this. And if I'd be in the room, I'd be like, Jesus, I really want to. Like, a lot. Like, this was, like, the coolest thing I've ever seen. And no one else has seen this. Please, can I just tell somebody about this? He says, don't tell anybody. The reason being, Capernaum, again, if we, we talked about in the beginning, is a Jewish territory. And the Jews believed that a Messiah was going to come and take over Rome and, and free them and do it all through military might. And Jesus was not going to do that because he had something much bigger in mind. And he wasn't quite ready to talk about that yet, especially not in the Jewish community. So he says, don't tell anybody. And then he says, and this is funny to me, give her something to eat. Which is like, why? Is it to prove that she's not a ghost? Like maybe if she eats something, they're going to watch and see if it's going to fall out of her. Like, are they going to, or like, you know, give her something to eat because she's probably starving. She's been dead. Like, I don't know if you get hungry when you've been dead for a while. Like, give her something to eat, which is very interesting to me. But it makes her human. Give that little girl something to eat. Give her a snack. We're going to wrap up with this. I love this story because it's really a story sandwiched within another story. It's a divine interruption. And in both stories, you have people who don't know what's going on, who have no idea what to expect, who are taking huge risks. 
and maybe barely believing in Jesus because he's their last hope. A story within a story much like our own. We are a part of a grand story, one of a people separated from the God who loves them more than anything, dead in our sin, helpless but not hopeless, because God rescues us and brings us back to life just like the little girl. And in the middle of this story is our very own chapter, one of God meeting us exactly as we need him to, just like the bleeding woman. And God's power is perfect despite our unbelief. The people laughed at him when he said he was going to bring her back. But he raised that little girl anyways. And in the midst of this grand story, your story still matters to God. Jairus mattered. His daughter mattered. The bleeding woman mattered. You matter. Even in the middle of all this mess, where is God meeting you now? Where is he calling you out, saying, don't be afraid, just believe? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the people in this room. Um, God, the past year has been hard for everybody. And many of us are, if not most of us, are unsure why it's so hard. But Lord, we know that if we have faith in you, that you bring redemption, you bring healing. Lord, as we sang about earlier, we're not alone in the water. You are there too. That you're with us now. And I pray for each one of us, Father, God, that you would meet us in our desperation. Lord, that we would pursue you more than the doctors that try to get our attention. Father, that we would be a people who desire to know you more than we know anything else. That we would desire a relationship with you more than anything else. And we thank you that at one point, just like the little girl, each one of us was dead in our sin. But you came and lifted us up and brought us back to life. We love you, Lord. Praisings in your son, Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thanks for coming. Um, I believe that it's going to be on a slide. I think we're going to stack the chairs. We're going to stack them nine high. Um, if you could do that, that would be awesome. Feel free to talk while you do it. Um, but thank you for coming today. You're dismissed.